Let's go to Jonah chapter 3. We're going to be verses 6 through 10 this morning. Jonah chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. We will be in Jonah for two more weeks. And then after Jonah, um, for some of you who have been here for a long, long time, remember a series that we did called Gospel and Kingdom. And you hear us reference it all the time. Uh, We are going to do that series or something extremely similar to it this summer. So really excited about working through the theme of the kingdom from Genesis to Revelation over the course of eight or nine weeks this summer. Um, And then we'll probably get back into a book starting then in August. Um, That is still to be determined. But uh, uh, for now, I wanted to give you that exciting piece of news. I'm excited to do that, and (coughs) we'll be sharing the the pulpit and working through uh, Gospel and Kingdom uh, over the course of the summer. Let's read Jonah chapter 3, verse 6 through 10. It says this, (coughs) The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful that you relented of the punishment due to us. And because of your way through the blood of your Son, We escaped the same eternal punishment. I pray that we understand you more clearly and we might worship and glorify you more clearly this morning. It's in Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you a question. I want to start with this question and seek to answer this question. What does God's love look like? How do you define God's love? How robust is your definition of God's love? Obviously, this is something that's going to impact the way you interpret and understand all of life. If if you define God's love as looking as a whatever way, let me back up, whatever way in which you define God's love is going to be how you understand certain actions and certain events that take place, particularly if you couple that with God being a sovereign God. <coughs> However you shade and color in what God's love looks like is going to impact the way you understand much of life. 
I don't think we realize just how much, though, of our, uh, really, our existential experience, or like our, our emotional and kind of the way we feel, like how much of that, our existential experience, is the primary determiner of our understanding of much of life, particularly our understanding of love and God's love. When we think of love, we think of like what makes us feel warm and oftentimes <coughs> oftentimes I think as I, as I kind of sat down and tried to think, okay, how do we how do we tend to think about love? I, I, this is not all encompassing certainly, but we tend to think of love as <coughs> others leaving us to ourselves, like as in I get to do what I want to do and that's the most loving thing you can do for me. Listen, that's not outside the church. It's the same thing inside the church. That's not just a reality with the, uh, you know, sexual revolution of our culture today. It's the same thing in the church. If you love me, you'll let me do what, this is the way we say it in the church, you'll let me do what I feel I need to do. We kind of spiritualize it a little bit. <clears throat> or we think of love as strictly tenderness softness, I wrote down this, looseness in others' expectations of us, that's loving to me. <clears throat> because of our poor understanding, I think we interpret, again, much of life very poorly. I, if, if this is what's loving, and that's what's loving from God, then I should act similar to that, and so then I try to emulate a poor understanding of the love of God, and so then what I end up doing is reflecting poorly God and end up doing things that are not helpful and certainly not honoring. Again, we struggle because of this. This impacts our worldview. We we have a hard time knowing what to say to others, and even sometimes how do how do we explain judgment? Like how do we explain what feels like harshness and uh, feels like uh, the inflicting of pain? How do we explain these kinds of things? We have a hard time knowing. I, th I think because again, because we have a hard time under we. We struggle to define God's love. We also have a hard time knowing joy as our daily best friend because we interpret God's actions wrongly. We struggle with joy because we don't see what's happening to us as loving if indeed God is sovereign over it. Woohoo! We often fail another because of this poor understanding of love, we often fail to turn in repentance because we don't see God's discipline as loving. And we're going to get to that in the beginning. We're going to get to that a little bit later, how we understand like faith and repentance and again, which one comes first, faith or repentance. And because if you don't have faith that God is indeed loving, then you will probably not re return in repentance towards Him. You will instead turn to self-righteousness and run from Him. Why? Because you view yourself as most loving in that moment, right? You view yourself as most affirming in that moment, not God. That's why you would turn to self-righteousness instead of repentance. But here's what I believe Jonah 3, 6-10 teaches us. It's this, that God's love, if I could put it like in just a, a little short phrase, that God's love sometimes hurts, but it always heals. God's love sometimes hurts, but it always heals. Sometimes it's both of those. 
Sometimes it's actually his plan through the hurting that brings some of the healing. So it's, but it doesn't always hurt, but it sometimes and oftentimes does. But it always heals. Sometimes it's painful. Love is painful. But I would not say it's because God is doing something wrong. It's because His love against our wrongness is what makes it hurt oftentimes. But it always heals. God's love actively, actively heals. Even when it hurts. Let's start with this thought here. God's love, forgetting at this definition of love, God's love must include hard judgment. God's love must include hard judgment. Stinging judgment, if you will. I get it. Many of us don't like this. Right? We, we, our culture has so trained us to think that any form of judging, any form of making a declaration of something to be right or something to be wrong is just out of this world, right? You, not need, you need to not only be okay with the way I think and feel and want to do things, but you, you even need to celebrate it with me. <clears throat> but God's love must include hard judgments. Think about the distress of the king with me for just a few moments. Jonah had been preaching a message, right? In 40 days, your kingdom will be destroyed. Think about the stinging judgment that Jonah is proclaiming to Nineveh. And this is God's message to Nineveh. Because of your evil, you will be destroyed if you don't turn. That's God's judgment on Nineveh. It's coming. It's coming. Now, I think... Part of this, I'm going to get to this a little bit later, is that we kind of separate ourselves from Nineveh. We think, well, they were terrible, and I'm like some kind of good Western American. Like, no, we're, we're more like Nineveh than we realize. And I think, I think Paul Tripp is right. He says this, you can't have true love that doesn't include judgment. Do you hear that? You cannot have true love that doesn't include judgment. If I don't care, hear me, if I don't care about your moral well-being, then I don't care about you. If I don't care whether or not you are sinning or living righteously, then I don't care about you. We say this, well, if you loved me, uh, uh, quoting Paul Tripp here, he says, if you loved me, you would not judge me. You wouldn't look at me that way. It's, he, he says, it's just baloney. Like, that's just baloney. That, that's, that's not how we understand love. Now, we have our less explicit versions, right? Here's a couple that I've heard. Who are you to judge me? You don't know me. You don't know me. Who are you to judge me? Or this one, you can't judge me. You don't have the relational investment with me. Now listen, I get it. There's, you need to know people. You need to get involved in their lives. 
you need to have relational investment. I, I, yes, I'm not saying that those are things that we shouldn't have, but these were just excuses to, to get someone to not judge them when that's what they needed. But what happens, though? What happens? The king turns because why? Because he's terrified. I mean, think about this. He's terrified. Like, in 40 days, God is going to overthrow your kingdom. Now, clearly, there's a sense in which he has to actually believe what Jonah's saying. And we'll get to that in a second. There's an illumination that happens, I think, with the king. Where he, uh, he hears Jonah and he goes, okay, I believe that. I mean, you're one of the greatest kings of the, of the, the world at this point. And you got this little Jewish boy running around talking about this kingdom coming. Right? It's going it's to overthrow you. Like, God's going to overthrow you. But he's terrified. Nevertheless, however he gets there, he's terrified. This terror is, if, if you think about it this way, is the terror of grace. It's a gracious terror to the king. God needs to put deep, life-altering fear into the hearts of Nineveh. That if you don't do this, this is going to happen. There's a fear. But listen, God, listen, God does not, like he, he does this, this terror, this, this proclamation of terror. He does this not because he wants to crush Nineveh. He does this because he wants to rescue Nineveh. Separateness between that's where like separation rather between us and God. Separate again between the, the, the separate God rather between us and God. Again, more on that in a bit. But God God does this this judgment because he loves Nineveh and he's going to rescue Nineveh. We usually judge because we want to feel better about ourselves. Right? So God though intends to save the Ninevites, through the real scary and morally indicting words of grace, this proclamation of destruction to come. Paul Tripp said this, the first step of God's judgment towards Nineveh is actually his first step in restoring and rescuing Nineveh. Because God never intends, right? Because of, we'll get to this in a second too. I keep wanting to preach ahead. But like God intends, like God never intends, never, like it's never God's plan to destroy Nineveh. Like that's not going to happen. But he's going to use that fear, the real threat, and use that. So this, in God's mind, in God's plan, this is the first step in God's plan to rescue the Ninevites. But nevertheless, what I want you to see is that it was judgment, and that it was real threat of judgment. Or it's real, it was real judgment, it was real threat of destruction that was used to turn the hearts of the Ninevites. I think one thing that we can learn from this is that you cannot love someone and not have hard talk as a part of the relationship. Like you can't have just light, fluffy relationships where we just kind of let, 
whatever happened, whatever happens. Here's what I found. The people without the robust understanding of God's love will leave a relationship once the other person wants to have hard talks. Because we, because we have this weak understanding of God's love that it does include judgment. Again, we're going we're gonna to flesh this out because this can be, honestly, this can be really dangerous too. Listen, every one of us is going to think sinful things and do sinful things. Because of that, we need hard talks. We need hard conversations. You know, you know the conversations that aren't fun, that none of us like to have, right? With our friends, you know, children or, you know, with the pastor or with our church friends, you know, like we don't want to have those. Now what you can do is smile your way through getting over your own preferences. Now what you can do is smile your way through getting over your own preferences. You hear me? Like, we have to be careful because a lot of times the things we don't like in other people aren't sin for the dishonoring of God's sake. Like, it's they just rub us the wrong way. It's really just them, God using them to expose sin in our lives that we need to repent of, and they don't need to repent of anything. But you can't, if there is indeed genuine sinfulness, you, you can't just smile our way through that. Like, that's not biblical love. If all, listen, let me, let me attack it from both angles. If all you want is for people to be happy with you, then you will not have the hard conversations. And the truth is, if you're not willing to have the hard conversations, then maybe you don't really love them. Now, on the flip side of that, if all you want from people is for them to, like, just, like, like, you want to feel loved in your narrowed version of that. Like, you don't want to invite the hard conversations in. Then maybe you don't want to be loved. At least not God's way. But we can do better. We can, do better, we can do better because God has showed us what this looks like and because His Spirit lives in us. Listen, we can't avoid hard talk and think that we're honoring our Savior. Now, so hard talk doesn't happen over text either, just for the record. <laughs> Sit down and have a conversation. Have a conversation. Listen, I, I'm not giving you moral law there. I'm just saying I think it's unwise. We can't avoid hard talk. So as we think about God's love, God's love involves this judgment, like this, this aspect of like Him caring about our moral well-being, our moral rightness. Like He cares about, like He cares about this. Listen, if, if God didn't think this way, if God, if this didn't come from who God is, then God would have never sent Jesus. So, God's love includes, I think must include, this measure of judgment. Second of all, God's love leads us to change. I, I, change is not on your notes, but you can add that to the end there. God's love leads us to change. I mean, leading, leads us in the process of change. I, 
we, we talked about like how does God change us through Jonah's prayer, but now I want to look at like how does God change us through like the situation of the Ninevites. Very quickly here. I want us to think about how God's love actually practically takes us step by step towards healing and glory. How does he actually work this through? And, and, and listen, this is something that both happens when someone initially becomes saved, right, becomes redeemed. But this is also something that should be true of us every day. In the lives of the should be happening over and over and over and over and over again in your life and in the lives of the Christians around you. The first one is this. There's, there's got to be some measure of illumination. Some measure of the Spirit's work where He opens the eyes of your heart. Did that bring back to anybody a 90's contemporary song? Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Sing it a thousand more times. Open the eyes of my heart. There you go. I know it's going to be stuck in everyone's head now for the next while. Some measure of illumination. See, the Ninevites lived assuring themselves that all was well. We're this great power. Everything is good. They were a powerful place. Success was theirs among the kingdoms. To use language from a few weeks ago or last week, they assessed their situation and said, we got this. We're good. To put it in like terms of like even Ephesians, they were to the reality of their sin by Satan. Then one day, through Jonah's words, they saw not just Jonah, but they saw a divine judgment over their heads. Right? What, what's the text say last week? They heard Jonah, they believed God. Something opened their eyes to see this. So they began, what happened? They began to cry out for mercy. Like their eyes and hearts, to use some language from last week as well, were open to eternal reality. Jesus tells us, and you can go read this later in John 16, that this is the work of the Holy Spirit, right? That the Holy Spirit, whether it's from inside or from the outside, like this Old Testament or New Testament, however he's working, he still works to open their hearts and to open their eyes, to illuminate, right? To, to shine light into the situation. Right? You walk into a dark room, like pitch black, right? And you like don't know what's in there, but, it's, but as a little bit of light comes on, you start to see what's in the room, right? And then as more light increases, like you start to see, oh wow, you see more clarity in the room, right? It's more illuminated. The Spirit does this both in the life of an unbeliever as he's calling them and drawing them to the glory of God and the mercy of the cross, but then he also does it to us as he redeems us who have already been initially redeemed, but as he's working his salvation in us, bringing more clarity to the, brill- to the, to the artifacts, if you will, that are in the room. And we just call that his glory. As he makes that more clear for us to see, we forsake the things of this earth to worship Him exclusively. Sinclair Ferguson said this, such illumination though is glorious, but it can also be very frightening. Why? Why can such illumination be frightening for us particularly? It, it, because it exposes the needs in our hearts 
and the sin in our lives that maybe we never even knew was there. We were blinded to it. Honestly, it frightens me to, to think about the idea that maybe that's the case. There's, well, I'm certain there is. There's sins that I'm just blinded to right now I just don't see. But it's also glorious. The illumination is also glorious because the light which falls can bring comfort and healing to us. So, I mean, think about this like in eschatological terms or end times terms, right? Like when, when the light is shine like down on our sin into our lives, but there is no longer hope for salvation. But God in His mercy does that for His people now. While there is hope of salvation. But this light shines in it. It can bring comfort and healing to us as well. On a massive, large scale, this is what happens in Nineveh. Something God has to enact on their hearts so they would see, wow, and believe, right? This crazy Jonah who was supposedly swallowed by a fish and survived it, and now he's come to tell us that God's going to destroy us, this great city, right? That doesn't make sense. When God changes you, it starts with an awareness of your sinfulness. Every time. Not just initial, but even today. It starts with an awareness. Now sometimes that awareness is brought to our attention in various ways. It's from the, the scriptures, it's from preaching, it's from uh, a friend, it's, maybe it's from the way someone else acts and then spirit uses their actions, whether they're good or bad, uh, to bring something to the surface in you. But it begins with an awareness of your sinfulness. The second is conviction. There's got to be an illumination followed by a conviction. Again, what happened, we talked about last week in chapter 3, the Ninevites believed God. This conviction that this is right. This is going to happen. We must turn from our sin. They were convicted and convinced, but about what? Their danger, their spiritual danger. Again, I ask you the question, is it loving to preach judgment? <laughs> As I was thinking about this this past week, you know, I, I heard many... Uh, Fire and brimstone sermons. Have anybody ever sat in some of those? They were particularly, uh, um, <laughs> particularly popular among like revival preachers uh, growing up. Fire and brimstone. I remember one particular. I won't say his name, but uh, and so like some of that, like I kind of left some of that in my childhood, and kind of now like. Most of my, maybe my adult life, I've been kind of like, I don't like any part of that. I don't want to have anything to do with any of that. And now I kind of find myself going back here in Jonah going, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Maybe I threw the whole thing out. Maybe it wasn't that the whole thing needed to be thrown out. Maybe there's parts of that that's actually biblical and even good. Of course, if you like Jonathan Edwards, you like sinners in the hands of an angry God. And if there's ever a fire and brimstone sermon, that might be one of them. 
But is it loving to preach judgment? I mean, Jonah does, and God tells him to go do this. I mean, so we have to wrestle with that. I would also encourage you to think about this. Again, go read Matthew 23, 24, 25. To believe that it's unloving to preach judgment would be to cast moral criticism on Jesus himself. Jesus preaches judgment. To warn men of the judgment to come, I would say, is not just a way, I would say it's the biblical way. Like, that if we're going to love people rightly, if we're going to lead people to the gospel, that judgment, if we're, like, we're leading our children to the gospel even, that judgment is a part of that formula, if you will. It's a part of it. It's not just come to Jesus so that your life is better or come to Jesus so you go to heaven. But there's a sense of moral judgment, of eternal destruction. That's a reality too. Right Now, I do think it's unhealthy when you just preach the judgment, right? That you just do that. Like, there's, there's healthiness and there's, because that's not the full gospel. The full gospel is not just turn to God to avoid hell. That's not the full gospel. That's part of the gospel. Pray this prayer so that you can avoid hell and go to heaven with mommy and daddy. What does that child love more? What does that person love more? God or escaping hell? Right? So th- th- this, this could be more robustness to it. It can't just be by itself. But is it loving to preach judgment? I think as long as we understand it rightly, yeah. It is. I think within your love, there must be some measure of warning about the judgment to come. Be some warning about danger. Again, this doesn't mean that we have to be all doom and gloom teachers, but it means that without the reality of pending judgment, that salvation really doesn't mean anything. Where are you saved from? Like there's a saved to and a saved from. They're both important. We're saved to glory, right? To love God, to honor Him. But what are we saved from? Eternal destruction of our own ways. Both are important. Listen, Jonah had been on the other side of this judgment, and he had returned as a warning sign to the Ninevites. Listen, to become a Christian, in some measure, there must be a realization of danger. To, to be convicted of it, of, to be convinced of it ourselves. Listen, I think this is part of why we struggle so much. So th- let, me back, let me back up. Though that statement's particularly pertaining to initial salvation and justification. Like, there, there's got to be some measure of, I'm, that God stands as judge, rightful judge over my sin. And He has declared me unrighteous. And as heading towards eternal destruction like that, that's God's judgment. I need rescued from that. Right? Gospel, right? Turn to Christ. But then also, so take, that's justification. Now we think about sanctification. Like as we grow in Christ, as we're, as we're trying to become, as God is making us into the image of Jesus, this is important here as well. I think because we, we fail to see oftentimes this simple fact. Our sin is terribly dangerous. Our sin is terribly dangerous. 
If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your sin is terribly dangerous. Meaning like it has eternal danger for you. Not just the people around you. I want to read these verses to you from 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10. You tell me whether or not you live as though you believe these verses. It says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Do you live as though that is real? All of us at some point, I'm sure, have struggled with greed. We're all idolaters. Listen, you will not repent truly until you understand the danger more fully. Do you hear me? One of the reasons why we struggle in repentance and growing in our lives is because we don't understand the danger. Listen, I, I, we have to be careful. See, God, God doesn't just use one motivation over the other. Uh, like, God doesn't just use one means to, to grow us. God uses multiple means to grow us. Sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's fear. These inten- but, but, uh, okay, I'm going to get ahead of myself. You will not repent truly until you understand the danger more fully. Okay, illumination, conviction. I knew I should have turned this little part here into its own sermon. My goodness. The second, third one here, godly grief. Godly grief. Illumination, conviction, godly grief. Godly grief. What's it say? What, what happened once the king, what, what, what kind of decree did the king issue, right? The people declared a fast and put on sackcloth. They were told to do the same thing with the animals. What's it say about the king? It says that the king himself arose from his throne and sat down in the dust. I mean, think about that. I mean, how, how humiliating that kind of act it would be for a royal king. This great king of this empire. They became truly sorry for what they had done, from what we can tell in the text. The text about how they gave up. They ordered this decree to give up their evil ways and their violence. One author said this, it's the fancy word compunction. Like their consciences were stabbed. And they began, I'm quoting here, to have scruples about their previous easygoing disobedience to God and indifference to His presence and glory. Godly grief is the antithesis of being easygoing about our sin. If you want to know, are, we, are you working through repentance rightly? Is there godly grief? Is your conscience stabbed? Second Corinthians 7, 9-11 says this, As it is, I rejoice 
Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. You hear that language? You weren't just grieved. You weren't just upset that you sinned, but you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. What I want you to see is this. Godly grief, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. How does God change? What, what's really wrong? Illumination, like an awareness that we have done something terribly wrong. Doing something terribly wrong. Conviction. This godly grief. Faith and repentance, the last two. Coupled them together. On purpose. Repentance, not only regretting sin, but abandoning it. That's a good way someone I read this week said. Not only regretting sin, but abandoning it. Clearly we see from Jonah that repentance was accompanied by the exercise of faith. Like again, faith, we've talked about this before in the past few weeks, faith precedes repentance. It happens before. But they're in simultaneous, like they're very right up there next to you. They're, they're best friends. They're inseparable. I think we confuse this because we confuse conviction and conversion. Or we confuse this, we confuse mourning for sin with turning away from sin. We confuse those two things. Just because you are mourning over your sin doesn't mean you're turning from your sin. We think that just because we have unhappy thoughts about our situation and our sin, that we are repenting for that sin. Like what Ferguson said, he said this, that turning away from sin is the hallmark of repentance. Turning away from sin, that's the, that is the hallmark of repentance. You want to know if I'm repentant? Am I turning from that sin? Like is there movement away from the abandoning of that sin? Dropping it, leaving it in the dust, turning to set things right. But real repentance must be accompanied by real faith. Otherwise, what are you turning to? Right? What, what, are you, what are you turning to? Why would you even turn in the first place? Why would you turn in the first place? Otherwise, your faith and hope you don't is just in your ability to make the situation better. Right? So if you don't, if you don't seek to change the situation because you first believe that God can change, that God can change you, that God is merciful, that He is faithful, that, that He will change, He will forgive you. He, if you don't first believe that, then what is your hope? It's simply in your ability to make the situation better. Back and go. And I, I think we should, can all look back and go, wow, 
I saw that that was wrong. Nothing changed. Why? Because I was just simply turning to myself to make things better. So that change, that it wasn't really repentance. It was just worldly grief and worldly change for the sake of worldly self-righteousness. But what's happening here? Uh, in Jonah 3.9, what they say? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What is happening in verse 9? I think we see a mustard seed of faith. It's just a little, but don't discount a mustard seed of faith. Again, this is not strong faith, but it was still faith. This faith had grasped something about Jonah's God, even when the message appeared to be one of doom. That God may forgive us. I like the fact that they didn't presume upon God. God may. God may do this. He doesn't have to, but He may. This God might have mercy. You see, trusting in His gracious character, they pled with God that He might be merciful to them. They cried out to God, forgive us. They threw themselves, if you will, helplessly on his character. Even their very limited understanding of his character. You see, re repentance and faith go together all throughout the scripture. The combo is necessary if we're going to have a healthy spiritual experience. Ferguson said this, We dare not approach him without repentance for sin. But we become morbid if we fail to reach out to His grace. Right? And so both and, like we reach out for His grace and, and we go to Him in repentance. Both. He goes on, Jonah himself had been brought to repentance by divine warning, but only because he found in God a divine welcome for penitence. For those who would repent, he, he found a divine welcome. <clears throat> and that's what's happening with the Ninevites, right? Like, the implied, like there's this implied welcome that if you turn, I will relent. I will not do this. And so it was with the Ninevites. They believed, they turned. The passage says this in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. Listen, the word there is repented. God repented of the disaster that He said He would do to them, and He did not do it. Alright, so how do we understand that, right? How do we understand that? I, I, I'm telling you, I, Oh my gosh. This is actually, I think we understand it right this morning, just a super powerful verse. Um, listen, God's love hears our cries. I, I want you to write that down. Fill that blank in. Put a star next to it. God's love hears our cries. You're saying, how in the world did you get that from verse 10? 
it's not a secret. It's right there. You gotta understand what's happening. I'm not painting things in the text that aren't there. Um, I'm not gonna quote him, but Trip was so helpful through some of this. I am so thankful. Listen, Jonah, here's what happens. Jonah presents to us an utterly sovereign God who repents, okay, who relents, all right? God is absolutely in control of everything. The professor in seminary calls this meticulous divine providence. But what we have to understand is that God is always working, and I think this is so helpful, it's the best way you can come up with to explain this. God is always working at two different levels. He's always working in two different levels. Kind of in two different realms, if you will. A human level and a divine level. A human level and a divine level. So think about the story with me. The Ninevites believed wholeheartedly that if they did not repent, that God was going to destroy them, right? Human level. That if they didn't change, God was going to destroy them. He was going to judge them as sinful and issue their punishment, death. From this, at the human level, we need to understand that if God tells us to do something, meaning from His Scriptures, it's clear, then we better be terrified of doing something else. the, The best example I could think of as I was studying this was Hebrews 3. God says, be careful. There might be an unbelieving heart in any of you that would lead you away from the living God, right? Therefore, you need to exhort one another every day. Like, we should hear that and, and realize the danger. Like, at the human level, we go, wow, my heart, my heart could lead me away from God. And so I need help here. Like, that should, we should at this level go, I need that. And be terrified of something otherwise. But God also operates at the divine level. Back to Nineveh. Those very words. 40 days and destruction. Those words are not intended, again, at the divine level. At God's level, right? Those words were never intended to be an announcement of what was really going to happen. Those words instead, at the divine level, were an invitation to change so that the announcement would not happen. Back to Hebrews 3. If you pair Hebrews 3 with like passages like, no one can pluck you out of my Father's hands, right? And, and Ephesians, where we're sealed and secured in the Spirit, and chapter 1, and Hebrews chapter 3, listen, God is not announcing that, 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 that this heart that is indeed His would ever fall away from Christ. I think what He's doing is that those words are an invitation for you and I to embrace the grace of help from others so that our heart will indeed not fall away. See, Jonah does two things here for us. One is this. He's reminding us that God is absolutely in control of His creation. I mean, how encouraging is that? 
We need to know that everything that happens is completely under God's control. We also need to know that there is never any tension between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. The second thing that Jonah does for us is that while God is in control of everything, he encourages us to approach him. This is what we learn here in verse 10. That even though God is sovereign over everything, we are encouraged here to approach him. Prayer, crying out to God. It's not just a pointless religious exercise. Someone said this, God is in rulership, but the way he rules is through his calling of you to make valid choices. This is the way he accomplishes his plan. God's love hears our cries. I think that's one of the things we learn here in chapter 3, verse 10. God's love heard the cries of the Ninevites. Have mercy on us, God. Have mercy on us. He hears our prayers. He hears our desperation. Another way to put this, kind of how these two things together God's sovereignty, him relenting. Like he has decreed that the means by which he will accomplish his sovereign plan is oftentimes through the prayers and cries of his people. So what I'm saying is that the at the divine level, God was never going like God God is unchanging. He is he he he, he never changed. So he didn't like have one plan and then go with another plan. At the divine level, like, the threat was real. That if they wouldn't have changed, they would have been destroyed, right? Like, God wasn't just like, well, well think about it this way. Actually, I took this out of my notes, but I'm going to go ahead and give the example anyway. So think about this as a parent. You say to your child, if you don't do X, Y, Z, if you don't do this action, I'm going to give you a punishment. Now, from that point forward, they don't do what you told, and now you can either give them the punishment or you don't, right? But, I mean, you really should, just for the record. You should go ahead and keep your word. It would be good for them. But here's the difference between us and God. God can issue a, a warning and know with absolute positive certainty, like, I, that was very redundant, but with certainty that that threat will produce the result that he wants it to the very details of every person's heart he knows that if, if he says it this way that this is what's going to happen he can know for sure so he can say it knowing that it's not actually that that plan's not going to happen it's it's going to appear that way for us but it's going to look a little bit different or it, it, it's different in his mind, in his eternal mind. As were for you and I, we can issue that threat to our children, and we might actually have to do it, and we can't know for sure. And we can know with some measure of certainty, right? If you do that, I'll give you ice cream, right? I mean, th they'll do it. But God knows for certain. Listen, it's never just what's happening at the human level. 
Like it's just, uh, it's just never just what's happening at this level. At the divine level, God was never going to destroy the Ninevites. And you can't just assess life at the human level because the human level is just glimpses of what God is doing at the divine level. And if you spend all of your life trying to figure out what in the world God is doing, you will drive yourself crazy. Your joy, our job, is to embrace God's active sovereignty and trust in His promises. I want you to walk away knowing that God's love hears our cries. The last thing I want you to see is this, is that God's love can take the worst ever and turn it into the best ever. We see this in Nineveh, right? What's the, in their minds, what's the worst ever? Destruction of their city and their livelihoods and their, their families. God turns it into the best thing ever. But I want to read to you from Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. This is from Peter's first sermon. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the, hear me, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was evil. And man is the one who did it. But was it good? Yeah, it's the best thing ever. What do you see happening? You see this God operating at two different levels here. A divine level and a human level. Tripp said this, what could be worse than the crucifixion of Jesus? Followed by this question, what could be better than the crucifixion of Jesus? You ever thought about that? What could be worse? What could be better? You see, God's love is so beyond our weak understandings. He is able to take your worst of situations and make the best out of it. He takes the the judgment of the Ninevites and makes the best out of it. He's able to take a storm and use it to lead your heart, just like Jonah's, to repentance and rescue you from ultimate destruction, which is so much more important than the temporary physical, mental, emotional destruction or pain of this life. God's love is tender and patient and kind. Behind the judgmental words of the warning was a tender heart. And that's, again, you start to see this, again, further this divide between us and God. You see, when we issue judgments, they are typically motivated by a hard, self-righteous heart. I want to feel better about myself, and it makes me feel better about myself to think less about you. But God's warning for the Ninevites came from what? A heart of tenderness. 
God's warning came to Nineveh out of a heart that wanted what was best for these people. He's planning to save them, to redeem them, to rescue them. Listen, even when God speaks to us in a tone that seems harsh, He does so from a tender heart. This God rules this world in such a way that it draws a response out of our hearts. Let me ask you a couple questions. Where in your life is God speaking hard words to you that you don't see as loving? Where is God doing that? It might be through the scriptures. It might be through a sermon. It might be through your children. Or maybe where is God calling you to do hard things that don't seem like He is loving you? Listen, if we're not careful, look at, look at me, everybody. If we're not careful, and we don't define rightly the love of God, we will miss the uncomfortable grace of God. We will miss it. We will miss the very love of God. Like we'll, we, like we'll be in the midst of the storm and just be completely blind to Him loving you in the midst of the storm. You see, it's really at the cross that we see the climactic, robust display of God's love. This sometimes painful, but always healing. See, he loves his son. And he loves his children, his chosen children. He, he decrees, like beforehand, right? The passage in, in Peter's sermon in, in Acts says that he decreed beforehand the crucifixion of his son at the hands of evil sinners like you and me. Through his death, through this horrible event, he redeems these lost children. Right? Uh, this, what's happening? Judgment is happening. Pain is happening. Not just physical pain, but the agony of the cross. The danger that you and I were in is being taken care of at the cross. He loves his son. He loves his children. He decrees the crucifixion at the hands of evil sinners like you and me. Through his death, he redeems his lost children. Then in victory and love, God the Father raises his son to life and seats him triumphantly in the heavenlies. God's children will never face destruction. But God's threat of it is an invitation to continue working out our salvation, in order that we might avoid hell and enjoy Him forever. 
the warning. Go, go read the warning passages in Hebrews. Those are, those are, those are not like, I'm just going to leave it at this. Those are meant to spur us on in faithfulness, trusting the Lord. God's love takes the worst thing ever and turns it into the best thing ever. So, God's love, I mean, if we're not careful, we'll miss it. We'll miss it. Listen, God's love sometimes hurts, but His love always heals. Let's pray. Gracious Father, oh, how we have eyes that struggle to see your ways of loving that are far beyond our comprehension. Why? Because we have eyes that want to define love strictly in the way that makes us feel happy and glorious and secure in ourselves. But oh, how your love is so far beyond us and is so much better than ours. Give us hearts that are dissatisfied with how we might define love in this world, that we would then turn So illuminate our hearts that we would turn from that and turn to understanding love as you have defined it. Give us grace to do that and then the grace to live in light of that. Emulating, being, embodying that love. Father, thank you for taking us, your enemies, And by the blood of your Son, Jesus, making us lovable. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.